and amen. Please take your seats. It gives me great delight this morning and an honor and privilege to welcome again to our pulpit the Reverend Bill Marsh. He's no stranger to the vast majority of us here. He was the pastor of this church before me for many years, and I owe him a great debt. Uh, he gave me a very firm foundation of a church well-pastored, well-sifted, well-pruned, uh, and well-taught uh, in the deep things of God. And I can't imagine where we'd be without your ministry before uh, we got here, brother, and I thank God for you, and it's good to have you back in our pulpit. Bring the Word of God to bear upon us, my friend. Amen. They're like Hollywood squares. <laughs> well, it is so good to be back among you and to see what the Lord is doing here. And um, uh, if there is a pastor in America who's more pleased with his successor, not that he needs my approbation, uh, I've just been delighted to see what the Lord has been doing here through Neil and Kyle and your elders and deacons and, and, and as the Lord is prospering this church. Take your Bibles, if you would, and be turning to Jeremiah 29. This is not a passage I have ever preached before. Um, there are a couple of verses that get taken badly out of context from this passage, um, but I think we can put them back in their proper place this morning and find great blessing and benefit uh, from this passage. Uh, Jeremiah 29, we're going to be in verses 1 through 14. Uh, as we go to God's Word, let's ask His blessing on its reading and preaching. Pray with me. Our Lord and our God, we come as people with um, burdens, with needs, with sin. We are um, cuddling and coddling with um, concerns about those whom we love, Lord, as pilgrims in a dry and weary land, and we need so much for your Spirit to speak through the Scriptures now. Lord, make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable uh, in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah 29, verses 1 to 14. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah in Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. 
For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Thus far, God's inerrant and infallible word. Some of you may know the short story by Washington Irving from the 19th century called Rip Van Winkle. Rip Van Winkle was a man who went off into the woods and some strangers visiting from a a distant land gave him some concoction to drink and he drank it and fell asleep and proceeded to sleep for 20 years. He drinks this concoction before the American Revolution, and he wakes up after the American Revolution. And the, the plot, the, the idea behind the story is his being amazed at how much things have changed from the time he went to sleep 20 years earlier. As he walks around town, pictures of King George III have been replaced with pictures of George Washington, and the changes just proliferate from there. Well, you may feel like Rip Van Winkle as you look at the world we are living in. If you bring a a biblical worldview to bear, if your mind has been shaped by the scriptures and being transformed by the renewing of your mind, then what in the world do we, what world do we live in, perhaps I should say? It was just 15 years ago this week, just to sort of put it in context, that the first iPhone was sold in, the, in this country. The Defense of Marriage Act was still in effect. This was pre-Windsor. This was pre-Obergefell. What someone has taken to calling the cathedral, which is academia and the media, you know, the cathedral told you in the Middle Ages what was acceptable to believe and what was not acceptable to believe. Well, the cathedral back then was commending pride flags, but corporate America had not yet transmogrified into the woke capitalism that we see today. No one knew what rapid onset gender dysphoria was, where people decide in just a few weeks that I've been born uh, in the wrong body. There was no widespread use of puberty blockers that we know of 15 years ago. If you had used the term birthing person, uh, people would have looked at you like the little dog used to look at the RCA Victrola and his head was cocked sideways and he wasn't real sure what he was seeing. No one knew what chest feeding was. That's a new one here just in the last year. In other words, back then you could kind of believe your eyes (laughs) and your ears and they accorded with reality. There were no vandalized pregnancy care centers. There were no fire bombings of those. There was no need, as the men at Grace Reformed Church in Clayton did this week, of escorting the volunteers who, uh, when they showed up in the morning and, and left in the evening, just being there and making sure that there was no harassment or any harm came to them. No one could have conceived of the need for something like that. Fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, thirty years ago, the church and the culture 
were, were neighbors, and they were friendly neighbors. It was like there was a little three-foot white picket fence. And, you know, the way neighbors in good situations can swap baked goods and recipes and wave at one another across the fence. There was this synthetic relationship between the church and the culture living peaceably side by side. But now, 15 years later, the church has a new cultural neighbor. And the new neighbors don't like us. And they are watching us just waiting to report us to the neighborhood HOA uh, for some violation of some rule because they know we're going we're gonna to do it sooner or later. If someone has wisely said, you may not be interested in the cultural revolution, but the cultural revolution is interested in you. And so as Christians, as we look around at the end of Pride Month and uh, at uh, what is happening in the world around us, if you're like me, you ask the question, what in the world do we do now? And God has an answer of what we should be doing every day in the world where God has put us. And so on this Independence Day weekend, I think there's a good word from this 7th century B.C. prophet. Because what God said through him 2,600 years ago has great application to us now, maybe more so than at any time in any of our lives. Because these exiles woke up in a new culture and a new place just in the same way that many of us feel like we have. And the older you are, probably the more you feel this. But even if you're relatively young, isn't there a sense that something is different? And I don't know quite what it is, but the, the world is changing. And we need to understand it. And we need to understand what God's Word says to us. This was a word in Jeremiah 29 to people who thought there was a quick way out of the problems. Just do this, vote this, pass this, and the kingdom will come. And Jeremiah has a very different word to God's people. And so let's look uh, in Jeremiah 29, first in verses 1 to 4, at what I'll call exile's conditions. The, in 597, the uh, Babylonians had come after, remember the Assyrians in 722 had come and brought an end to Israel, the northern ten tribes. And now in 597, a hundred and a little piece of a century years later, uh, they have come in 597 to uh, Jerusalem. And they are, they've taken away every uh, portable thing they could get their hands on out of the temple. They have taken away King Jeconiah and the royal household. If you want to read about that this afternoon at the last few chapters of Second Kings, uh, you get this account of the fall of Judah. But Jeconiah and the queen mother and the royal household, his governors and officials and all of the leadership are taken away to Babylon. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, installs, uh, through his military, he installs uh, Jeconiah's very young uncle, Zedekiah, 
uh, to be a vassal, to be a sort of a royal governor. He calls him a king, but really he's there because Nebuchadnezzar says he can be there, and there are expectations of sending wealth and tribute and living under uh, Babylon's um, uh, reign. And these exiles go from Jerusalem to Babylon. I don't think we appreciate, unless maybe you've ever been plopped down in a foreign country on the other side of the world, how different that experience would have been. The geography was completely different. The city didn't feel anything like Jerusalem. And the vegetables were different. And the language was different. And there was no temple. And they were worshiping these false gods. And it was everywhere. And it was completely different out of anything they knew from their experience. As far as the east is from the west was the difference from Babylon to Jerusalem. And they're carried off to this place. The king had gone there, the the officials, the craftsmen, the top 10,000 leaders in um, Judah and all carried away, the, the medical leaders and the academics the people who could get something done, the best and the brightest, all carried away. And they carried away their craftsmen and their metal workers. Because once you annihilate another country's army, you want to make sure that there aren't people there who can rebuild that army. You don't want the kind of leaders who can do that, and you don't want that kind of technical knowledge in their hands. And so you carry them away to make sure they can't help the people that are remaining back in Judah uh, to rebuild. And in the midst of that, God says, I have sent you to this. If you had been in Jerusalem at the time of the exile and seen all of this happening and this this world being turned upside down, you could blame the Babylonians, you could blame poor leaders, uh, you could blame false prophets, you could blame corrupt priests. And yet in verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. God says, I'm the one that did this. Oh, it it happened by the hand of the Babylonians, and it happened because your leaders were corrupt, and it happened because they were incompetent, and because they had not sought me, but I am the one who did this. Brothers and sisters, you and I are living at the exact time in the history of this nation and world where God would have us. It it would be easy to wish we could all somehow live in Mayberry or pick your ideal society and town and culture to live in, a place that would somehow feel like home. And we are now a long, long way from home. We've not been physically relocated, but very in a very real ways, haven't culturally and haven't in social ways and in the sort of the, the, the sense of the age and the feel of the age and the water we swim in, aren't we a long way from home? If you were to go to Psalm 137, I think I preached here three or four years ago, uh, that psalm that written from the exile when the captives say, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? This may not have felt like a foreign land to you, but increasingly, isn't there something foreign? It's like they're they're speaking a different language. 
They're using the same words we're using, but they don't mean the same thing that they used to mean. Brothers and sisters, God knows exactly what is happening in this world. And he has you here right now. Some of you, he has given incredible gifts to engage uh, with the culture. Others of you perhaps are at the end of your lives and you have more time than you have ever had to pray. And you may say, Lord, take me home. I I don't like what I'm seeing. I don't like the world my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren are going to be living in. And God has you here. And God has you still alive. And God has given you both the time to pray as you've never prayed before, and he has given you uh, the burden to pray like you have never prayed before. And so we are right where God would have us. We could blame corrupt leadership. We could blame uh, the unfaithfulness, broadly speaking, of the American church. We could blame Russian disinformation. We could blame the social media companies. We can blame the cathedral and the cultural elites. We can blame the secularists. But we are right where God would have us at exactly the right time. Let's look secondly at what I'll call exile's instructions. This is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning in verses 5 to 9. God had told his people uh, to go to this new place. And you see, they really have some remarkable uh, liberty. This letter can be carried by these ambassadors, by these emissaries uh, to the people from uh, Jeremiah uh, back in Judah. And he can send this word and they can continue to gather. These people are still priests and prophets in exile. And I think it's worth, I mean, they could move around, they could build cities, they could, I mean, they, they weren't enslaved the way God's people had been, say, in Egypt. And I think it's worth noting that amidst a lot of bad cultural news, amidst, you know, snowflakes on university campuses being triggered, you know, at this and that and the other, God providentially, just as he placed his people in exile in Babylon in a culture that was hostile and yet gave them a remarkable degree of liberty inside the boundaries of Babylon. So providentially, the God who has us in this place in time has given us to live under a constitution that grants us remarkable liberty with which to engage the culture. And despite what you read in uh, direct mail solicitations and whatnot, We are living in a remarkable time for religious liberty in this country. The jurisprudence has advanced in ways that are just unpredictable and whoever would have thought. And I think the hand of God has been at work. Unfortunately, cases have had to be litigated. But most every time those cases have been litigated and made their way through the court system, uh, religious liberty has been preserved and has been expanded. Not in the culture, but in terms of legal protections and whatnot. Uh, we have that. God, like a, uh, a group of linemen, if I can put it this way, uh, has opened up a hole uh, through our Constitution, and now it is up to us to run through that and what He has given us. God says in uh, verses 5 to 9, He says, Build houses and live in them. In other words, settle in. 
If you and I had been exiles, if we were carried off halfway around the world, wouldn't we sit? We wouldn't even want to unpack the suitcases. Uh, especially if you were to go back and read this afternoon, chapter 28, there have been a false prophet saying, oh, this will just be over in a few years. We're just going to take this one action. We're going to do this one thing, and the kingdom will be ushered in, and life will be great again. It'll be just like it was before. And God says, no, I've put you here, and I've put you here to engage with the world around you. So unpack your suitcases, build houses, live in those houses, plant gardens. In other words, you're going to start eating different foods than you used to eat if you're a captive. You can't grow those kind of foods in Babylon like you could grow them back in Judah. In other words, you're going to begin to in a good way, make peace with the people around you. Not with the culture, if you will, but with the people there. And God says, I want you to take wives in verse 6, and I want you to have sons and daughters. And then he goes on to to unpack that in a fairly long verse 6. If you look in the Western world, there is a malaise going on. Um, Societies are not reproducing themselves. If you talk to demographers, people who study trends in population, they'll tell you that when people feel good about the future, they start having babies. They, they want to bring children into that world. And when they're concerned about perhaps being destroyed or that they won't be able to feed those children or whatnot or there's warfare, fertility rates fall. We haven't been replacing ourselves as a country for 20 years. At the rate Japan is going, there won't be a Japan in about 150 more years. The Russian, you need 2.1 children to, uh, per family to uh, maintain your population. The Russians are down at like 1.6, 1.5. There won't be a Russia in 150 years at the rate they're going. It is the spiritual malaise and oppression that is in the world. And we see it in these population trends. And so what does God tell his people to do in that place? Take wives, have sons and daughters. Give your sons and daughters in marriage. uh, Let them uh, rear children. Brothers and sisters, that is an act of faith. It is an act of faith believing God's promises. The things he will say down in uh, verses 10 to 14, that I have a future for you. And it may not be the future that you thought it was going to be, but it's going to go on for 70 years in this place. But I would have you... Uh, walk in all of the normal ways you would have walked uh, back home. You had to have faith in God's plan. You had to have faith in taking him at his word. He says in verse 7, to seek the welfare of the city. That's Babylon we're talking about. You know, people twist this verse 7 a lot, seek the welfare of the city, which means, you know, I like the city I live in, I like artisanal coffee and craft beers and skinny jeans and soul patches, and so this is my excuse to go do all those things and to say Jesus sent me to do it. Understand, when God says seek the welfare of the city, he's saying seek the welfare of a place you hate. And there's not a reason in the world naturally for you to like this place. But in my plan, the welfare of this city is tied to your welfare. And so against every instinct in you, against every natural impulse, we would say against a world that uh, 
I mean, we are one YouTube click away, you know, from this building being vandalized. <laughs> or, or something that, that is said in public, now it gets tied back to... And God says to, the peop- to a neighborhood, perhaps, of people who would do that to us, He says, you go seek their welfare. You go move toward them, not away from them. The natural thing is to run away from the burning building. But God calls His people to run toward the burning culture. And to seek its welfare. Because he sent them there. And a major part of that is to pray for it. To contend before God for it. To do that because, as he says, in its welfare, at the end of verse 7, you will find your welfare. God has yoked his people together with this corrupt Babylonian culture. And he says, you now have skin in the game. You may not care about that person who is so wildly different, but here's a pair of handcuffs, and I'm putting one handcuff on you and one handcuff on them. And now your welfare is tied to their welfare. Because he knew our tendency and our inclination to recoil, to to just head for the hills, to say, this society is out of its mind, and I want nothing to do with it. And Christians don't have that option. We are to be in the world, against the world, for the world. Just turn that over in your head. In the world, not of this world, against the world, and for the world. And he says, and of course, look in verse 8. There have been these false prophets who had been coming and saying, oh, this won't last long. Uh, these, these false prophets, how do you know a false prophet from a real prophet? Well, you knew by their signs then and if what they said came true. But even more than that, they could say something that came true, but if it didn't accord with what God had said earlier, then you didn't do it. You didn't follow that prophet. And so he says to ignore that. How will you and I know false prophets? We'll know it because we know our Bibles. And we will know how God has spoken in Scripture. And we will know if what people are saying accords with that or it really doesn't uh, mesh with what God has said in Scripture. Remember in the book of Revelation in chapter 2, the church at Pergamum, we're told they dwelt where Satan's throne was. I mean, they were in the hottest part of the fire. And yet, Uh, the Lord rebukes them for holding to some false teaching. They needed to know what God said, and they couldn't afford to mess around with false teaching. And brothers and sisters, neither can we. We could never really afford it. But in these times, in this culture, we must be crystal clear about what God has said in the Scriptures. Well, as we seek the welfare of the city around us, of the people in our neighborhoods, of the co-workers, of the extended family that we maybe look on social media and think, I can't believe that they think X or Y or Z. The thing we most want for them and for a city is peace. And that peace comes through Jesus Christ. That peace comes through a crucified Savior, a risen Savior, an ascended and reigning Savior. 
And so the thing that we most want in seeking the welfare of the city is for King Jesus to reign in every heart and in every home and in every neighborhood. And there are lots of different things for us to do in that. The Lord has gifted the people in this room in amazing ways and in a a cornucopia of ways and different talents and situations where God has placed you and different opportunities that you have. And understand that's different from the work he has given the church as the church. The work of the church is, is to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. And so your, your, the church, your pastors and your elders and the work of this church has a, a narrow role. But as they pursue, as your leaders pursue that, it's like throwing um, wildflower seeds out along the side of the highway. They're going to bloom in a thousand different ways and places in, in the different contexts where God has put you. And so we, we want to be faithful in those places while at the same time preserving a Christian culture. I don't mean that, you know, there are these shibboleth words that we use and, you know, you have to learn how to, you know, sing certain, certain hymns from a certain age in history. I mean, there is, every society has a culture. Every group of people has a culture. They're the things that we know, the things that are unspoken. And we've got to be more deliberate than ever in teaching our children those things. I can remember being in fifth grade in a private, it was a secular school. It was nothing distinctly Christian about it. And for memorization work, we had to learn the 100th Psalm and the 23rd Psalm. Friends, that that ain't happening anymore. We've got to be more intentional about catechizing our children, about teaching them uh, the great hymns of the faith. It doesn't mean we sing every old hymn, but it means we're deliberate and intentional about shaping them, about shaping their sensibility, about shaping their, um, their instincts. I said earlier that the fence dividing the culture and the church used to be a little three-foot white picket fence. Well, now that fence needs to be about a 12-foot high fence with concertina over the wire. I mean, over the top, because we don't want the influences, the prince of the power of the air who prowls about like a roaring lion, shaping what happens in the church. But if you've got that picture of the church with the 12-foot fence around it and the concertina wire, you also need the picture of big, wide gates that says, whosoever will come, that invites all, that says, this is a place for you. This is a place for sinners. Jim Boyce wrote these words, I think, 40 or 50 years ago, and they were updated by another pastor. You may have seen them on the cover of a bulletin at some point um, in your um, church life. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares. To all who are weak and fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, this church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus, the mighty friend of sinners, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the indefensible, the justifier of those who have no excuse left. We want to be a different culture. And we want this place to feel different and to have a fragrance and an aroma that is different. 
what we want when people come here to feel a love that they have looked for all their lives in all of the in all of the wrong places in all of the false ways in all of the ways that the world can never deliver they've believed the lies of the enemy and they come here and they hear words of life that requires us to be present to be engaged to, to not pull away from our neighbors, to not pull away from our co-workers that have fallen for the enemy's lies because we used to fall for the enemy's lies. They're exactly where we are. We want them to understand it's not because I was smarter than you or I was, was quicker than you or I have something to commend me to God. It is because of the grace and mercy of Christ Jesus that is offered to sinners. I love what one pastor has said, and that is the church in the world is a colony of heaven in a country of death. A colony of heaven in a country of death. Friends, understand as we engage with people that people are saying different things. We must love them all. There are some who can be engaged. There are others who just want to argue and we need wisdom to know where to invest our time and I'll say unless you are somebody like Darren Stone our brother who engages so well on social media with skeptics and with those um, outside the kingdom you probably aren't smart enough you aren't as smart as Darren to be able to engage on social media in a way that is going to do kingdom uh, goodness I don't know many people who were brought in the kingdom because they read something that I tweeted or um, wrote as a comment on on a Facebook post. No, this is is one-to-one. This isn't a coffee shop. Even better, uh, this is over your kitchen table. That wonderful new, relatively new book, Rosaria Butterfield from Durham wrote, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And we, as we have people into our homes, we've never had nicer homes and we've never opened them less. We want to engage the people around us without falling for the myth of influence. So we, we need to speak boldly and courageously. People have thought with the best of intentions that if they somehow didn't avo- they avoided certain subjects that they would have influence with the wider world. Ask Rick Warren how well that worked out when he was invited to pray at Obama's inauguration and was sort of driven from the program when it became clear he couldn't endorse same-sex marriage. Or Max Lucado a couple of years ago at National Cathedral in Washington. Or from our own little part of the Christian world, Tim Keller. Uh, I would disagree with Tim Keller on a, a number of issues about culture, but give the man his due. He has worked hard to engage sophisticated Manhattanites with the gospel. And yet he comes to get a prize at Princeton Seminary and just however nice Tim Keller had tried to be, it didn't pay, pay off. They sort of had to cancel this program because he was a bigot and a hater and whatnot. So expect that. Expect that we will be perceived as the enemy because every one of us has been a victim of the enemy and the enemy is at work. And the enemy hates the light. And so the people around us have to understand we're coming not from a place of moral superiority. Instead, we're coming, as one fellow said, as one beggar telling another beggar 
where to find bread. Friends, victims of the enemy are going to start coming to our churches. As the contrast between darkness and light grows around us, people are going to be walking into our church. Think of them as refugees from the darkness. And are we ready to engage with people that don't look like us or act like us or dress like us? There are going to be people that walk through the door, same door you came through into this room. And you're going to look at them and because of some of this insanity about puberty blockers and uh, gender transition, uh, I hope in a few years, by the way, we're going to think of that the way we think of frontal lobotomies now, which were all the rage in the 40s and 50s. Medical authorities agreed it was a great thing to do. And we see how that turned out. Just like medical authorities agree that we should we should inject all kinds of chemicals uh, into confused people. They're going to come into this room, and the first thought you're going to have is, I'm not sure if that's a he or a she. And you know, they may not be sure either. And it's going to require us to suppress a fleshly instinct, which is, I don't know what to do. Here's what you do. You go and you greet, and you hug. Um, imagine if you're in that place. When was the last time someone hugged you <laughs> with affection, with genuine love, not trying to get something from you? But we can be the aroma of Christ in a culture of death. That is our privilege. We get to do that. Friends, We do have to be ready to be hated. A servant is not greater than his master, Jesus told us. Paul told Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul told the Romans, if we suffer with him, then we shall be glorified with him. And it's nice to know that's coming, but we have to suffer first. Even more, remember the overarching lesson of the book of Revelation? That in this time, in this age, winning often looks like losing. Who are the the human beings who are most held up as exemplars in the book of Revelation? Who gets to sit underneath the throne of God himself? It's the martyrs whose garments are being washed from the blood that is in them. And God says they're the ones who are blessed. And so our understanding of what it is to win in this time has got to be calibrated by the scriptures and not by opinion polls. Or we got this guy elected. We need to elect this guy. And I'll, I'll give you some names of some guys if you, and gals if you want to know. Ask me later. But that is not our hope. Our hope is in the advance of King Jesus, whether you and I live or whether we are martyrs. It is true for the the captives in Babylon. It is true for us. As someone has said, they weren't captives. They were missionaries. (laughs) We're not captives in this world we live in. We're not kicking and screaming with where we are. We look around and say, the contrast between darkness and light has never been greater. 
And we are what Jesus called a city set on a hill. And we read throughout the Psalms this vision of the nations that stream toward Jerusalem, that stream toward the king. And it becomes easier for them to see that in a dark place as they they come toward King Jesus. And friends, they'll see it not in billboard campaigns or, or movies or whatever. They'll see it as they look at the homes in this church. Is that, I mean, how many of your children's friends have never seen a mom and dad who love each other at a kitchen table with no phones and we're eating a meal and we're just talking? I mean, it's never been easier <laughs> to show the world the difference King Jesus makes. To show the world not, not just what the Bible says, but the wisdom of marriage as God instituted. The wisdom of keeping the Lord's day as God instituted, the blessing that that is on people. And so this is going to require us to be in the world, not of the world, against the world, for the world. Well, quickly as we wrap up, let's look at the exiles' expectations, what their expectations were supposed to be. First of all, it was that this wasn't going to be over quickly. We aren't just one election away from turning everything around. The, the false prophet had said, oh, in two years, you'll, you, you'll be back home. This will all just be an ugly memory, and we'll get things back on track. We'll make Judah great again. Um, <laughs> instead, they're told in verse 10, I, I didn't have that in my notes. I, I may get, if I just offended you, I'm sorry. Um, in verse 10, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. Oh, this is going to take a while. This is not going to be over quickly. But part of why it's not going to be over quickly is because God is working his plan. Verse 11, the the verse most butchered by greeting card, Christian greeting card companies. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Yeah, but you get that after 70 years of exile. (laughs) That's the bad news. But God will be working in that time. Because in verse 12, then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. Perhaps the reason our culture is like it is, is to drive God's people to set themselves to praying. For, For prayer to become a new priority. For praying together to become a new priority. As God brings us to a place where we see we're not going to get it any other way. Except we call out to him. And like that wonderful verse in Ezekiel when God says, I will let them ask me to do it. And so that's where we find ourselves. And then as as God chastises us and brings us to a place of praying, then that verse that we've all seen on bumper stickers and heard a lot and and understood there's some some truth there, the the dedication of Solomon's temple in 2 Chronicles 7, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And it comes about as God's people pray. And God is saying, this is the best promise uh, that, that, that I can make to you because I'm guaranteeing you the result." You will find me. 
Seek me and you will find me. This is not some scam. God's not a scammer. One of one of you, and I'm not going to look in your direction, uh, your Instagram was hacked yesterday, and there was this, this plan that showed if you would uh, send by cash app $300 uh, to this address, that within minutes you would get back thousands of dollars. Um, and of course, it was, a, it was a scammer and whatnot. But God is not a scammer. And he says, if you seek me, you will find me. This is not a snipe hunt. This is not going out and hoping we catch some fish today. This is God saying, you will find me. Friends, what we usually lament, we lament in our culture, understand is God's plan. As we say, he is using our sin and our nation's sin, and he's doing it sinlessly. He's using the very thing that he hates to accomplish the things that he loves, which is his people drawing to him and becoming a holy people. This is our opportunity. Julian the apostate, he was called by the church, was the last pagan emperor of Rome. The the emperors subsequent to him had some relationship to the church. I'm not saying they were Christians and they were born again, but there was a there was a peace inclination toward the church. This Julian the apostate understood the power of these Christians. He wrote in a letter, he referred to them as Galileans. So he said, these impious Galileans not only feed their own, but ours also. Welcoming them with their agape, they attract them as children are attracted with cakes. While the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity and by a display of false compassion have established and given effect to their pernicious errors. Such practice is common among them and causes contempt for our gods. Julian didn't last long. He only was on the emperor for about 18 months, and he was on his deathbed. And his dying words were, you Galileans have conquered. And the church is the church. She conquers through the power of King Jesus. You may say, this isn't what I signed on for. This is, why couldn't I have lived at some other time in history? To remind you of the words of Gandalf in Lord of the Rings when Frodo uh, says to Gandalf, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And Gandalf replies, so do I, my dear Frodo, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. And I would add, and who gave it to us who has given us this time who has given us to live in this place we are in a new relationship to the culture but the outcome is the same as always been and that is that king jesus still wins and so let me close with the words of peter writing seven eight hundred years later uh, to christians under Roman rule, under uh, scattered in the different provinces. This is a word to you, brothers and sisters, to all of us. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject to the Lord's sake for every, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's pray. Almighty God, we confess we watch TV too much. We listen to insanity on social media too much. And Lord, we've not listened to your word nearly enough. So give us the spectacles through which to view the world as you see it. Lord, to uh, go forth as the fragrance of Christ uh, in these new and unsettling times. What a blessing, what a privilege it is. Lord, do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.